Good morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name is Tobias. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Christ the King. <clears throat> and Penny's away, so I get the chance to bring God's word to us this morning. Um, we've been studying the book of Philippians, and we're going to continue that um, this week, and then uh, we'll finish it up the week after Easter. And we're going to be focusing on chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 this morning. So I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible Word. Paul writes this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable... Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, uh, we bow before you, maker of heaven and earth. And we are thankful that you, in your faithfulness and in your love and in your mercy, uh, through the precious blood of our Savior Jesus Christ shed on our behalf, have made peace with us who were at one time enemies with you. Thank you, Lord for your peace. And we ask now that uh, you would help us to see more of that peace this morning as we study uh, Paul's message to the Philippians. Help us to see afresh uh, what you call us to and what you have done for us. And Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, so uh, last week uh, we heard Penny uh, walk us through chapter 4, verses 2 through 7, and we heard many instructions uh, that he gave us there. And here in verse 8, Paul starts with one word. He said, finally. And with that one word, he signals to us that he's bringing this broad section of instruction to a culmination. Last week we saw him instruct the Philippians in a few different ways. Uh, we saw him implicitly instruct them to be united. Remember, he entreated Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And this makes perfect sense. After all, most, much of his letter is about the unity of the body of Christ. We saw the Apostle Paul urge them to rejoice in the Lord, always. And I find that fascinating because Paul was most likely writing from prison. And here's a man who's saying rejoice always in the Lord. There's something we can learn from him. And then we heard him encourage the Philippians to pray. Uh, he said in verse 6, Do not be anxious 
about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And yet, significantly, we heard Paul give more than just instructions. He also left them with a promise. In verse 7, he says this, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as we pick up the passage this morning, we see Paul in verse 8, picking up that promise and fleshing out what it looks like to have hearts and minds guarded by the peace of God. And pastorally, I really appreciate this, and I think it makes a lot of sense for Paul to have done this. After all, he knew that the Philippians were not experiencing peace. They were being persecuted from those outside the church. They were being threatened by Judaizers and other enemies of the gospel. And they were also experiencing internal strife. Remember again Paul's entreaty to Yodia and Syntyche that we saw last week. Agree in the Lord. And you know, Paul was also aware that the physical absence of Jesus as the ascended Lord as the Philippians faced these trials, not to mention Paul's own absence from them, could be disheartening to them. And so he recognized that the Philippians had a real need to know and to experience and to be assured of the peace of God in the present, in their current circumstances. And so he left them with that promise, the peace of God, which surpasses <coughs> excuse me, all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, isn't this true of us as well? Don't we have the exact same need to know and to experience and to be assured of the peace of God amidst the difficulties we face. So how can we do this? What will it look like for us to experience the guarding peace and presence of God in our thinking as well as in our acting? Well, I, I think the Apostle Paul gives us answers to these questions in these two short verses, verses 8 and 9. So go ahead and take a look at verse 8 and listen to what he says. He says, Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here we clearly see Paul focusing on the importance of right thinking. And this was a central theme for the Apostle Paul. And this makes sense. After all, he understood that the heart and mind are the wellspring of a Christian's conduct. He understood, as Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6, that it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. 
But you know, he understood too that a mind and a heart not guarded and not immersed in the things of the Lord is the surest way for a Christian's downfall. Remember what he said in Philippians 3, verses 18 and 19? He said, For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. It's not surprising then that here in verse 8, we hear Paul give the Philippians a list of things that should occupy their thinking, that should shape their hearts, their minds, and their attitudes. And I, I don't think I would be doing it justice if I didn't call your attention to the simple yet highly effective style Paul employs by repeating that simple word, whatever, six times. Did you catch that? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, it's got this sort of staccato effect as it punctuates these virtues. And I think it makes it memorable. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if many of you in this room have found this verse in particular easy to remember. And, you know, as those who ought to be hiding God's word in our hearts, it makes me thankful for Paul that he sort of waxed eloquent as he brought this theme of right thinking to a climax here. I also think it's important or helpful to point out that you'll notice a shift in Paul's style at the end of this verse uh, when he says, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise. I don't think the Apostle Paul is adding two new virtues here, excellence and praiseworthiness. I think what he's doing is he's giving us a summation of his exhortation to right thinking that we've just read about. It's as if Paul is saying to the Philippians, brothers, fill your minds up with all these things, anything that is excellent, anything that is praiseworthy. And you know, in a general sense, I think Paul's exhortation here in verse 8 is similar to what we hear him say in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, when he says, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Or what he says in Romans 12, too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And you know, as I, as I think about those verses, it reminds me of how as a freshman at Covenant College, my Christian mind, <coughs> excuse me, my Christian mind professor, we actually had a class called Christian Mind. It's a great class. Um, I remember him uh, teaching us that thinking Christianly means viewing all of reality, including the people we meet and the things we engage in, through the lens of the story of Scripture. 
It means putting on gospel spectacles, as it were, and, and having the realities of creation, fall, redemption, and the Lord's glorious coming consummation filter and shape all of our thinking. And, you know, as citizens of heaven, it makes sense that our thinking ought to reflect that heavenly citizenship, right? However, as true as all of that is, in light of Paul's repeated emphasis on the need for unity throughout this letter, along with the apparent dissension within the Philippian church, which last Sunday we saw Paul allude to in, the, in his entreaty in this broader passage to Iodia and Syntyche, be in agreement in the Lord, I think what Paul's doing here with this list of virtues is urging the Philippians especially to have Christ-centered thinking shape their relationships with one another as well as with others they might meet outside the walls of the church. After all, it's in our relationships that we oftentimes experience the least amount of peace, isn't it? And so when Paul's, what Paul's getting at here is actually very similar to his earlier exhortation to the Philippians in chapter 2, to think like Christ as they relate to one another. Remember what he said in verses 2 through 4, just before he launched into that majestic Christ hymn? He said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. But you know, it wasn't only godly thinking that was important to the Apostle Paul. Godly living was equally important to him. And you'll remember earlier in Philippians 1, chapter, uh, verse 27, we heard Paul say to the Philippians, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Or as you heard me suggest in my sermon on that passage, only live out your citizenship in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And of course, Paul's emphasis on godly living, again, makes sense. After all, we are citizens of heaven. And so we should act accordingly. And so I think this is why we see a shift here. After verse 8, we see Paul shift from thinking to action as he brings this passage to a close. Take another look at verse 9. He says this, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Here we see Paul sum up his life and ministry among the Philippians with four simple verbs. Learned, received, heard, and seen. And it's significant that he doesn't merely tell them to think about what they remember. 
He tells them to practice it. Uh, I think it's, it's as if he's saying to them, brothers, consider all that I've taught you about the good news of Jesus Christ and all that you heartily accepted. Recall how I treated you, how I faithfully conducted myself as an ambassador of our Lord while I was among you, and how even now I'm willing to pour myself out for your sake. Brothers, remember these things and live your lives similarly as fellow citizens of heaven. In other words, here we see Paul taking up one of his favorite themes, I think, a theme of imitation. He's asking them to embrace imitation. And in fact, earlier in Philippians 3, verse 17, we heard him say, join together in imitating me. But you know, his call to imitation, Paul's call to imitation, wasn't limited to just imitating him. In fact, uh, at the end of verse 17, he goes, he goes on to say, their eyes, keep their eyes, keep your eyes, Philippians, on those who would walk according to the example you have in us. And so I think uh, this is possibly why he gives us the uh, description of Timothy and Epaphroditus in chapter 2 as examples. It's as if he were saying, take a look at these guys. You see how faithfully and selflessly they conducted themselves for your sake. Follow their example. Well, perhaps you're thinking to yourself, well, it seems a bit arrogant or self-serving for Paul to set himself up and his companions as those worthy of imitation. But I don't think it is. You see, I think what Paul's ultimately doing here is calling the Philippians to imitate Christ. He's calling them to consider the life and ministry of Paul and his companions and to see in them a reflection of the selfless thought and action of our Savior who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, you know, I think the essence of Paul's exhortation in verses 8 and 9 can be summed up in what he said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And, you know, it reminds me of the first stanza of the hymn that we sing, May the Mind of Christ My Savior. You remember how it goes? May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and say. Well, friends, as we consider these verses this morning and Paul's exhortation to think and to act ultimately like Christ, what does it look like for us to do that? And what effect does it have on our community and our broader lives when Christ-centered thinking and action permeate our relationships? 
when we resolve in obedience to the Lord to believe only what is true and just of our brothers and sisters. When we refuse to participate in gossip and slander and instead choose to relate only things that are just and commendable, excellent and praiseworthy of one another. When like our Savior, we're filled with compassion for those in need and willingly accept loss, perhaps even suffering, in order to secure our neighbor's well-being. When, like Paul, our hearts break for the lost and we answer the Spirit's prompting to share our faith with those outside these walls. Friends, when we think and when we act in a manner like this, does it not give us a picture of the peace of God which surpasses all understanding? And is it not a powerful testimony to a watching world of the presence of God among us, providing the peace that he alone can provide? Well, if that's the case, why do we so often fail to do what Paul calls us to do in these verses? If the effect of obedience on our community is experiencing the peaceful presence of the Lord, why do we disobey? Well, I think the simple answer is that we're sinners. And in our weakness, it's easy for us to take the low road in our thought life, isn't it? Rather than to answer the high calling Paul challenges us with in these verses, to think and to act like Christ. It's simple for us to entertain impure, unjust, and untrue ideas about one another. To pass on stories that could harm a friend's or a co-worker's reputation. To choose, unlike Paul and unlike our Lord, to act not selflessly on our neighbor's behalf, but to act in our own self-interest. And you know, I also think that we fail in this because in our pride, we tend to rely upon our own strength to obey Paul's exhortation. We try to muster up the will to think and to act rightly. Uh, a sort of sola script, a sola bootstrapa Christianity that so oftentimes just makes its way, makes its presence known in our lives. And we forget that earlier promise that it's the peace of God not ourselves, that guards our hearts and our minds. But friends, you know, I think Paul understood this. And I think this is why he chose to close this passage with another promise. Look at what he says at the end of verse 9. He says, and the God of peace will be with you. In verse 7, Paul promised the Philippians that the peace of God would guard their hearts and minds. But here, Paul promises them the presence of the God of peace. 
And you know, it's important for us to understand it's not as if Paul were saying here that God's peaceful presence is dependent upon our thinking and acting rightly. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. There's nothing in the grammar that would suggest that type of causal relationship. In fact, I think Paul's going out of his way to, to encourage the Philippians not to draw that conclusion. Instead, what I think Paul's saying, what he's meaning to say is give the Philippians assurance of the Lord's presence even in the midst of their difficulties. He's reminding us that as we seek to be faithful to Paul's exhortation, to think and to act in a manner worthy of the gospel, gospel, the presence of the Lord is with us and will sustain us despite our failures. As, as, if, as, as if he's saying, brothers, I know this is a high calling. And you're apt to fail. Just like Euodia and Syntyche, by the way. But trust that the Lord is with you. The one who made peace with you when you were enemies through the precious blood of his son is he who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And you can rest assured that this God of peace who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Friends, do you remember the words of our Lord, the first words that he spoke to the disciples after his resurrection in the Gospel of John? He saw them and he said to them, peace be with you. And then he repeated it. Peace be with you. One commentator said that peace is the first fruit of Calvary. Isn't that beautiful? And you know, before he ascended to his father, Jesus, the Lord of peace, promised his disciples at the end of Matthew that he would be with them that he would be with us always, even to the end of the age. Friends, the God of peace is with us. And resting in that promise is what brings us lasting peace. Will you believe that promise and find rest today in the presence of the God of peace? Let's pray. O gracious and mighty Lord of peace, we bow before you and we bask in your grace. And we are thankful for your great redemption and for your unending love. Oh, Father, we plead our weakness. We confess it to you. And we ask that you, by your spirit, will give us strength to walk faithfully before you, to think as our Lord thinks and to act as our Lord acts. And Lord, we trust that you will sustain us as we do so. Oh, Father, grow us in grace. Help us to be an encouragement to one another as we walk. And we pray this in the mighty name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.